Hello everybody, you're listening to Shadow Talk. I'm your host for today, Victoria Austin, and we're in London. We've actually, um, we've had a, a week off, I guess you'd say, we with Thanksgiving, but in that time, we've, a lot has kind of happened, and especially in Digital Shadows, actually, we have just released a new white paper. It's called The Modern Cybercriminal Forum, An Enduring Model. And actually, to kind of discuss what we've um, argued in this paper, I've got Stuart Bertram, Director of Strategic Intelligence at Digital Shadows. So, hello. Hello. Welcome. Hi. This is your first uh, podcast at Digital Shadows, isn't it, Stu? Uh, it is, yeah. So, let's make it a good one. Yes. Cool. So, we have just published a uh, new paper, and I guess I kind of explained the title, but I was wondering if you could go in a bit more detail about what we've kind of, yeah, looked into. Sure. So, what it's really about is about um, an observation. So, cybercriminal forums, their presence and law enforcement efforts against them have been mainstream news now for years on end, really since kind of the Silk Road uh, a few years ago. You know, everybody in cybersecurity knows about them. Everybody knows what's going on with them, and law enforcement certainly know what's happening. And you see takedowns of these forums on a fairly regular basis. So sites being seized by the FBI, um, you know, UK counterparts, international counterparts, all the time. And so the, the question is, why? What you know, why are these forums still there? Um, and you know, a few years ago, the cybersecurity community, myself included, were very much saying, you know, forums are a dying thing. There's going to be other types of technology that's built to be secure, um, that's built to keep the content hidden. It wasn't necessarily designed for cyber criminality, but it was designed um, around people's nervousness over any kind of sort of surveillance on the internet or state surveillance. And you saw a lot of this um, during the Arab Spring, where uh, people were saying, "Yeah, you know, they're using social media technologies, but." These are really, that was really a hack, and you were seeing the rise of different types of technologies that were going to be a lot more secure, encrypted, and all that kind of stuff. For people who wanted to have conversations and conduct business that they didn't want observed. And yet, here we are, um, seeing a, a sort of you know, dark renaissance period of the cyber criminal forum. You're seeing user counts going up. You're seeing proliferation of cyber criminal forums. You're seeing diversification of products being offered in those, and you're seeing moving into new market spheres. So looking at, say, for example, exploiting smart cars, that's surprisingly mainstream on these forums. And the question is why? And that's what this paper explores. Yeah, I think one of the things that spoke out, and we've actually we've written about this a lot as well, is that the issue of trust it kind of just travels between, between these cybercriminal I guess actors, you know, they're on these forums, and if one for, if one forum goes down, it instills a, a kind of a fear within the marketplace. So that kind of dissipates, and I think that's one thing that's been highlighted in this uh, in this paper that trust is really important when it comes to a forum. And I guess the forums these days have kind of, um, yeah, disproved the fact that people, although they're going down and they're they're popping up, that they still. They still have a rep. If the forum has a reputation that they and they trust it, then then it will endure. So I think that's one thing that spoke to me in this paper. I guess there were a few other things as well. Right. So you know the key the key thing. There's a couple of points to kind of pick up on. I mean, one there's been many generations of forums, and there's been forums kind of going up and down like yo-yos. So you know you're seeing um, you know you know the old school kind of. Um, forums giving way to the new ones and uh, and this sort of constant cycle of birth and renewal 
some are exit scams, some are taken down by police. Um, and uh, again, what I found interesting in the paper is some some admins just just abandon the forum. You know, they just go off somewhere else and do something else. But I think it's important to look beyond the, the kind of forums. And what you're actually looking at here is community. And I think also as well, you've got a, you know, we call these people criminals. Is that what they call themselves? And I think a lot of the time, if you ever did manage to sit down with these people, you know, they wouldn't necessarily identify as that. They'd be like, well, actually, I'm an activist. You know, they don't they don't view what they're doing as as criminal per se. They view it as some kind of kind of activism. I think that gives it a lot more um, ability to kind of endure that transcends forums. Um, to give you a, a kind of real world example, I was speaking to a guy that ran a stock market exchange, and um, he said, "Look, you know, if if." If all our software went down tomorrow, the traders would still be trading. They'd just find another way to do it. All we're providing is that kind of platform. And that really stuck in my mind because, you know, you're looking at the same type of thing, whereas forums come and go, but these people and their activity will kind of stay. I think the, the interesting part is when you get into the granular nature of it, is, is why, why is it on this kind of clunky forum technology when you've got these other kinds of technology that are a lot more secure that you think would actually be a lot easier to kind of use? And then counterbalance with that is, you know, there's stuff like Tor, and people often talk about the dark web and all that kind of stuff. But what we look at mostly in the paper is actually surface websites. So exploit.in that's just sitting on the surface, bubbling away there. And we're going to the technology as well, saying, you know, there have been attempts to create things like blockchain DNS-based sites. But because of those technical barriers, people are actually not so keen on those. They're actually much keener on less secure sites. Yeah, and they're, they're very difficult to access. In fact, um, sometimes the sites don't work, and so you have to try new ways. So obviously that kind of puts people off when they're trying these new things, and that feeds into the kind of ease of use. You know, these platforms, these forums operate in the same way a business does, you know, legally. They they need to attract, um, they need to have the right marketing skills, they need to attract the right customers, they need to have ease of use, they need to have... Um, secure ways of people transacting and i guess another thing that has come out of that is um how cyber criminals are actually turning to escrow services which is something we touch on and is something that we have published in the past around a, a blog on so yeah there's lots of little um intricacies that we pick up in the blog of course i think one thing i guess when we're looking at the meaning of this obviously these forums are persisting but I guess if you're looking at it from law enforcement's point of view, I guess how does this change the way they're going to operate? Tech? Does it? I guess does it change the way they are going to try and continue taking down sites? Do they need to be doing anything differently? Um, I, I mean, I wouldn't want to speak for law enforcement, not least because I don't really have a background in it, kind of myself. But I mean, you know, the, there's there's two issues that you're looking at with removing anything, any kind of content really from the internet is one, the technical technical ins and outs of actually removing it, but then also the kind of joined-up, coherent kind of policy of doing something to, to, to stop damaging kind of content or something like that. And you can transfer that onto, uh, you know, any kind of platform. So you know, pe- people selling less than desirable things on Amazon, for example, is in some ways the same kind of problem. It's just in a smaller sort of microcosm. I suppose what you're seeing here is, you know, deliberate acts of kind of criminality and you know this comes down to this idea of is it is it kind of overall being kind of effective and what people are doing in those areas as well i think again it goes down to the framing of it and 
you know, if, if you're looking at the sort of driver for criminality, that's for monetary gain. So people have a certain level of, you know, risk that they're prepared to take. But if these guys are believing they're actually, you know, doing the right thing and they're activists, they tend to be a lot more motivated and they tend to be a lot more difficult to kind of um, dissuade. Also in the paper, you know, you see examples of guys who um, have served prison terms and then come out and then picked up where they left off because they're returning to that reputation. Whether it's the same guy or not, you don't know, but they're, they're using that kind of reputation. They're driving that kind of forward as well. So, uh, you know, I wouldn't like to comment on an overall effect of policing, but I think what they do need to think about is what's the strategic effect you're trying to achieve here as well as the tactical takedown. Yeah, and I guess um, if you're an organisation... Another thing, to, I guess, to kind of think about the threats that could be facing you on these forums, I guess, is to think about monitoring and, I guess, having an organisation or a third party perform that monitoring on your behalf, perhaps. Right. And so, you know, going going back sort of two years, really, is for us to, to gain oversight into this this space is, is a significant monetary investment. This isn't cheap. You need people who are skilled and you need technology that's specialist to look into that area. And bear in mind the Discord a couple of years ago was like, you know, these forms are going to die. That wasn't that didn't look a great investment. But I think what you're seeing now is actually these forums, far from dying, are flourishing, they're growing, growing in numbers. We're seeing you know, doubling in numbers on certain certain forums. And we're looking at the persistence of that. And that's great, but that creates more noise. So for every one piece of valuable in, information, there's, you know, a thousand conversations about the latest Star Wars film. <laughs> So from a cost versus benefit perspective, it's, you know, that'd be a really hard sell to, to do if you were in an automotive company or if you're in a financial company. I think that's really the role of the vendor is, is it's not so much that this is, you know, an incredibly dangerous, lethal space to be in. It's not, far from it, it's friendly. It, it, it's kind of that cost versus benefit. So if you're looking at a service versus, um, you know, outsourcing this to a service like ourselves, or if you're looking at another kind of more conventional um on a SOC analyst, it's much easier to make that 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 argument for a SOC analyst internal to your organisation, and then a service like this external to your organisation. Um, at least in my mind. Nice. Well, yeah, I think that those are just the key things we wanted to highlight in today's podcast. That is the um, the research paper that we've just published called the Modern Cyber Criminal Forum. So, yes, uh, if you would like to read it. I definitely recommend so. So you could do that at resources.digitalshadows.com. And Stu, yeah, thank you so much for joining us to discuss it. Yeah, thank you very much. Well, yeah, so that is a little highlight of the research paper we just put out. But back into kind of the nitty gritty, I've actually got Adam Cook joining me to discuss the weekly highlights. So hi, Adam. Hello. Hello again. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm good. Thank you very well. Good. I think, yeah, we're just going to kind of crack on and get started with the news that uh, a British streaming service named uh, Mixcloud had reported a breach. So I, I guess, you know, breach is quite common, but what kind of data was stolen in this mm -hmm. case? Yeah, so this one caught my attention. I thought I had a Mixcloud account from way back when. Uh, turns out I don't, so that was good. <laughs> but yeah, when, when you said you wanted to talk about this, um, I did a little bit of prep in that, making sure that I wasn't involved. Very uh, good. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Uh, uh, email addresses, IP addresses, and some securely encrypted passwords only for a small selection of users has been reported. And those that signed up via Facebook appear to be safe, which I thought was a bit of an odd 
twist of irony because we don't often talk about Facebook inadvertently helping people to stay secure, but there you go. Is this something that they had said themselves? I think so, yeah. yeah. They said that anyone that had, you know, when you can like sign up for a application or something like through Facebook, mm. they said they don't store passwords for users that sign up in that. In the same way. In that way. I see. Um, so Facebook aren't actively protecting them. It was just like accidentally. Um, yeah, reportedly being sold. So the data set is reportedly being sold online for approximately 0.5 Bitcoin, which in today's world comes to about $4,000. So it could be a bargain if that data can be used for further further malicious activity. I didn't get the impression that there was much to go on considering that you know, it's it, there weren't a great deal of passwords or reportedly weren't a great deal of passwords involved. If there are, then, you know, this will be a classic case of threat actors being able to use the PII, sorry, the personally identifiable information exposed in that breach to better tailor phishing emails so they can be used more uh, to e- convince users more easily into interacting with malicious content. Thought what was interesting is that premium membership for Mixcloud was only introduced in July mm. of this year. So similar to I guess Spotify in that sense. Yeah, so fairly recent. Uh, but I think the main message from Mixcloud was that if you do have an account uh, that requires uh, credentials to log in, then it might be a good idea to to change or adjust those. Yeah. So I think it's my understanding that the actor, the threat actor, is identified as. A underscore A underscore W underscore S. Catchy. A-W-S, yes. Very catchy. So, yeah, I didn't know if we had any more information around this um, actor. Very little uh, that I know of. There wasn't a great deal of detail in either of the, the source reporting around this, but I'm assuming they are either active or trying to make a name for themselves on whichever forum it is that they've posted. Um, yeah, opportunistic. Yeah, I would have thought so, but yeah, I, I don't, I don't know very, very much yeah. about this factor actually. I think also in some ways the, the what the sources also show is that the the actor had contacted uh, the media to mm-hmm. begin with, and again yeah. that kind of shows that they're looking for kind of either media attention and they're hungry for kind of trying to make a name for themselves. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So that's I guess something to consider in in that way, but yeah, I guess. Just, yeah, I guess another breach for the week. Mm-hmm. Um, in this case, usernames um, and email addresses and hash passwords. So, yep. but I guess if you, I mean, you thought that you could be involved in, in that breach, you know, and as as a customer, yeah. you would be quite worried that this is this is now out there. Yeah. So I guess, yeah, mitigation steps, you know, what could, what could occur because of this, I guess. Phishing is one thing to think about. Yeah, more tailored phishing attempts. But even tailored phishing attempts against people who may not even have an account. Think about, you know, you just said, I don't have a mixed cloud account, but I uh-huh. thought I did. You yeah, know, yeah, Sometimes yeah. we could get those emails that say, you've been in a breach, but you actually haven't. So. Absolutely. And then me knowing about what's going on in the news would then scare me because of that. So that's quite a strange concept, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Um, so yeah, of course, you you know, you sign up for so many internet uh accounts in your whole life you know, can't keep track of it like everything mm-hmm. in inventory no one's got that in the, on the 100% of the band, so. and that was a classic case of me like recognizing the I recognized the brand imagery and I was like I swear I've had an app for that before at some point 
And it's a classic case of you may be signing up for an account for an application that you use once and then never using it again. And then I, I did a similar thing with the eight tracks. Do you remember eight tracks? It's like mm, a, yeah. like a music yeah. streaming service where you could like make your own playlists and share them with stuff. That's one of the ones that are, my old email address got popped in. Well, you're into bigger and better things now. Do yeah. You? Yeah. Podcast, you don't need to be exactly. Yeah, exactly. But you know, you know, the, 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 the point stands, it, it can be, it can sometimes be these benign single use apps or services that you sign up for that end up exposing you. Yeah. And uh, they might not immediately come to your attention because you haven't used it in ages. Nice. Following on from this, we also have an update, but this time it is from Europol. So Europol, I guess this is good news, you know, they have reported the fact that they <laughs> have been able to take down a uh, rap spyware. So, yeah, Adam, I thought you might want to kind of touch touch on this. Absolutely. Yeah, this, this certainly caught my eye this week. Um, so this is a notification or a statement from Europol and other uh, international law enforcement agencies that they have dismantled the group behind the imminent monitor rat. So this is a remote access tool that has been used in multiple campaigns. It's quite a prolific tool. Uh, Some of the ones that I noticed um, that we've reported on previously are attacks against Samsung service centers. Rather traditional kill chain behind it. Uh, more, more often in the activity that we've observed, they've been the tool. Sorry, has been delivered in spear phishing. So spear phishing u- lures are used to deliver malicious Microsoft documents that then exploit a certain CVE, and then that then downloads a handful of remote access tools, of which uh, the in these campaigns against Samsung, imminent monitor was one. It was also aimed at, I think they think that uh, there are lots of people using it, but it began by one group in that Samsung service centers in Russia were targeted before the ones in Italy. It was also used so, in... Sorry, sorry. When you say some people were using it, you're talking about the threat actors who were basically employing... I believe so. That's usually how these things work in that the the, the people that develop them will try, will use them. And then once their success is attached or you know, can be attributed with that tool. They'll then make them commercially available and successful attacks, um, you know, that are conducted that use the, the use those kind of tools then gives the tool a bit of clout yeah. or a good reputation. And then it's easier to advertise it as for sale or for hire after that. Um, yeah, so there were a couple of other cases. I think it was targeting, used in campaigns that were targeting government and financial entities in South America and also banks in West Africa. So, you know, it's likely that it's been uh, commercially available for a while. This is a, a popular model for tools such as this, like we just discussed, who, which, you know, they rely on a good reputation to encourage purchasing or renting by aspiring threat actors. It is reportedly very easy to use and cheap to hire. It's got a number of capabilities, which are, you know, some of the things that we would, you know, expect to see with these tools, recording keystrokes, stealing data and passwords from specific browsers, spying on victims via their webcams, downloading, executing files, etc, etc. So yeah, it's a pretty capable tool. Yeah, very high high capability in that sense. So Mm -hmm. yeah, we've seen what it can do. But, you know, how does the takedown work in, in this kind of instance? Yeah, I mean, 
this was the the pieces of the reporting that I was paying close attention to in that initially when they said, okay, we've taken down the group behind it, that is somewhat um, confusing in that this tool is being used. I think it was like 124 countries around the world or something. They've seen the tool being used. Um, but it appears that they've targeted, the Europol operation has targeted both the sellers and the users. So I'm guessing it's probably a fairly large operation. Like I said, being the tool was being used in, in a bunch of countries. So the joint effort resulted in the seizure of infrastructure behind Imminent Monitor. Mm. And they also arrested 13 individuals that are likely the most prolific users or sellers of the tool. Yeah, um, yeah I think the fact that it, it is an international crackdown is is really good effort, of course. You know, these days, cybercrime literally has no borders. It, mm. it can target places anywhere in the, yeah. in the world. And... And at the same time, you know, we need mitigation or we need law enforcement to mm -hmm. act in the same way and and to, to stop that. So obviously this is really good news. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I'm, I'm happy with yeah, that. Yeah, it's interesting. <laughs> yeah, happy with it. <laughs> it was, um, it's going to be interesting to see if it gets used again at all. Like, I, I don't know if just, I'm sure the infrastructure being seized and you know 13 of the most prolific users or sellers being arrested is likely to halt it but big operations like this are likely to deter any other hackers that either have access to the tool or one similar to it but you know there's so many other tools out there either for sale or for hire or that are spreading in a similar fashion cheap and easy to use yeah. um you know so i think with the release Europol also uh, produced kind of a document on, you know, if you are infected, what can you do next? And so they provided a lot of um, information around this as well. So I think that's, yeah, it's very helpful cool. to understand. Yeah, I didn't see that bit actually, but yeah, that sounds good. Nice. And then, yeah, so moving on, we've also got Adam here to kind of talk about the InSum highlights. So the weekly InSum is something that Digital Shadows produces and it's basically a newsletter of the weekly highlights. And this week we have a different focus. So I guess, Adam, what would you kind of... Yeah, so this week the Intel team has decided to give a wider analytical piece on the topic of social media exposure and security standards. We've tried to challenge some of the contemporary thinking around security practice, practices sorry, that are being pushed towards users as like the bare minimum or like the standard nowadays. So these would be things like uh, updating your privacy settings and using strong single-use passwords, etc. What we're trying to do is illuminate the value in understanding, uh, but also regularly managing your digital footprint, especially that of social media, which has become a primary source of open source intelligence or OSINT. And the key thing we would like to point out here is that maintaining security standards is really important going beyond one-stop-shop approaches that either become outdated or are bypassed by more sophisticated hacking techniques. So we took a little look at some of the developing password cracking techniques that can even be used to crack maybe some of those strong passwords that you've started using. Uh, the privacy settings thing I think is, is really interesting as well. A lot of social media platforms now have pretty rigorous privacy settings or, or, or measures that you, that you can do. It can be arduous, it's, it's, bit, it's a bit boring, but it's something that is becoming increasingly important in controlling not only who's in your network, but who's allowed to see what in that network. And a lot of these platforms will 
put your profile as set to public by default. And that notion is something that we've drilled into a little bit in that uh, I was doing some some research for, for a presentation last week and I didn't know this previously, but everyone's Amazon wishlist, if you have an Amazon wishlist, that is public by default even. You might expect some of your social media profiles or your LinkedIn or something like that to be public by default because these platforms thrive off users sharing and connecting with each other. But the Amazon wishlist really caught me off guard. I was like, why does that need to be need to be public, right? They're, they're public by default. You have to you have to choose an option when you're on your wish list to set it to private, which I'd recommend you doing. Um, you know, most people might hear that and go, well, I don't really care. You know, I've got dog treats and Christmas gifts and just my reading list on uh, on my Amazon. So so why should I care about that? But the interesting thing that, that we were looking at in the InSum and last week when I was doing this research is that knowledge of your wish list could you know aid a more sophisticated phishing attempt right if i know what's on your amazon wish list amazon uh, phishing emails are common i get i get i've had a few of amazon phishing emails you know the ones where they try and get you to update your payment card details or they mm-hmm. tell you that your order has failed to be delivered or something like that wouldn't it be far more convincing if i knew well, we what don't was be on away a trip. yeah sure no but if if um if I knew what was on your wish list, it would be a lot easier for me to try and convince you or to trick you into interacting with malicious content, potentially. It's unlikely. It's a very hypothetical out there example. But, you know... in Something that you thought was worthy of mentioning. Absolutely, yeah. I just It just struck me that wish lists, that Amazon deem people's wish lists as something that they want to share with each other. I don't know. So yeah, that's that's the topic of this week's in some. Uh, you can you can get hold of that from the resources center on Digital Shadows website as well. Yeah, so yeah, lots of things kind of take away this week. We've got the research paper that we've just released. We've mm-hmm. got the in some, which is a different form of um, information, but mm-hmm. is also available on resources. com. So yeah, I guess I hope everyone has enjoyed listening today, and we will keep in touch. So yeah, thank you very much. Thanks, Victoria. (laughs) Thank you.